Howdy, everyone. The sponsor of today's episode is Ledger. Genuinely love this company. I've been working with them for a really long time. You're going to be hearing all about them from me later in the show. But for now, on with the program. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Jack Farley. What is going on? Uh, Mike, Jack? I want to say great to be here. Really looking forward to this. But I would like to a little bit of a correction, a little fact check. This is actually not your podcast on the margin. This is my podcast for guidance. So I welcome to you. I am the host. You are my guest. Welcome, Mike. How are you doing? Ah, uh, uh, all right. So is this like a little brother challenging big brother type deal? With like a little fun jab? It's a, if 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 it makes you feel better, Jack, we can have this be forward guidance. Okay. It'll be forward yeah. Well, it's just, it's sort of a it's a pecking order. It's there's um you know like there's like co-founder of the company and also hired me but then there's like added two charts so i added two charts so it's my podcast <laughs> you know what at the end of the day this it doesn't matter jack we're just here to have fun yeah, yeah, and what sure. i will say about the two of us is that while everyone else is petering off their holiday content taking breaks you and i no days off we're ripping through charts here Gotta give the people what they want. Oh yeah, you know you know, I mean? the people. You, you, I can just forecast it. There will be, you know, the bond market will be closed. They can't, you know, lose any money buying uh, some curve steepeners on the euro dollar market, and they need some charts to to keep them through New Year's. So uh, we're we're here. We're here to deliver. They need charts, right? Yeah. yeah. And if you're not actually doing any of that as investing activities, but you're just sick of hanging out with your family over the holidays, no judgment, no judgment. Here's a little bit of macro content for you. Yeah. So let's just dive right let's in. Let's do it. All right. Now, this one, I, I got to give credit where credit is due. The first like seven or eight of these charts we are pulled from Yuri and Timmer uh, over at Fidelity. This guy makes, this guy's like a Picasso with making charts. Honestly. He is the it, these are like, Yeah. He is the Picasso of making charts. So Yuri and credit where credit is due. These are, uh, you know, big shout out to you. Um, what we're looking at here is basically a visual representation of U.S. monetary policy going back uh, to 1983 through the current day. Jack, you want to talk to us a little bit about what we're looking at uh, at this chart here? Sure. So every single line here is somewhat of a, 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 a derivative of the federal funds rate, which is the overnight rate that banks lend to each other that's completely in control of uh, by the Federal Reserve. They control the, that short end of the curve, the long end. Uh, the curve of the yield curve, mostly the market forces. Uh, the Fed doesn't really have a ton of control over it, but the Fed, they control that. So the somewhat uh, smooth snoping line that goes from 3% at 1983 down to just above 0%, that smooth line mm -hmm. is the, quote, natural rate of interest, or R star. Don't know a ton about this, but this is basically the what rates, quote, should be uh, in order to fulfill the Federal Reserve's two goals of price stability and maximum employment. Again, that's not 0% unemployment. It's not It's not full full maximum unemployment, but that, that's another thing. And then uh, the other curves are uh, real rates. So the dotted orange line, the Atlanta Fed shadow rate, uh, is taking this natural rate of interest and then subtracting inflation. So it's showing that it is deeply, deeply negative. And the blue line is what we would have if we would assume 3% inflation over the next uh, five or so years. So it shows inflation moderating. And I should note, uh, key to this chart is that when the real rate is above the, quote, natural rate of inflation, that is restrictive monetary policy. When it is below, it is accommodative. So, uh, Mike, what Urian's uh, chart here shows is that monetary policy is extremely accommodative. 
Absolutely. Um, and I, I really like that he's drawn this out uh, starting back in the 1980s. Um, you know, to my, uh, you know, untrained eye here, you know, back in the 1980s, obviously rates were much, much higher, uh, right? You had the 10 year topping out somewhere around uh, 18% or something then. Uh, so the Fed funds rate is like uh, just under 8% uh, kind of at its most restrictive. And I, I think what this chart does a really good job of is showing uh, different periods in time of when a com uh, monetary policy was accommodative versus restrictive. And you can kind of see that, you know, everything before about 2000, so about 1983 to 2000, uh, it certainly did fluctuate uh, quite a bit. But there was a lot of time in kind of the penalty box, so to speak, and that we had pretty restrictive uh, monetary policy back then. Since 2001, which, right, which was the bust of the dot-com bubble, we have spent a lot of time in whatever the opposite of the penalty box. It has been extremely, extremely accommodative uh, for that period of time with very, very low real rates. So, you know, make of this what you will. But I, I think this is kind of telling us something that we already knew, which was that, yeah, it's been... Um, you know, we have not been playing, we've been sort of playing tennis with the net down uh, for the last 20, 20 or so years, so to speak. Yeah, and the net is up in 2019. As you mentioned, very briefly, we were into that restrictive monetary policy. Jerome Powell, Fed chair, was raising rates. However, in the final month of 2018, December 2018, we had something like a 20% crash in the stock market, leading to the so-called Powell pivot in January of 2019. There is a chart later uh, which shows the relationship between the f actual fed, fed funds rates and then what the Fed is forecasting via its dot plots, and that will be relevant. But uh, without getting the weeds, let's move on to the next chart, Mike. What are we, what are we seeing here? So what we're looking at here basically is, uh, is a whole bunch of different things. So we're looking at the Fed funds rate, which is in yellow, uh, which is uh, basically since March of 2020 been held very steadily down at right around that 0.31% uh, uh, type range. Um, we're also looking at uh, these these purple dots are the represent the current representation of the dot plot, right? So that's that's some aggregation of the different uh, governors of the Federal Reserve, and they're voting on when they think um, interest rate hikes are going to happen. Um, and basically what you're seeing here is uh, if you were to solely look at the dot plot, uh, you would see three separate rate hikes um, in uh, 2023. Uh, what we're also looking at these um, uh, little blue circles, I guess, uh, is the, uh, the euro dollar curve, um, which uh, flattens out much before the, um, uh, what the dot plot is showing us. So, you know, basically what I uh, see when I look at this is a euro dollar market that does not agree um, with, uh, with what the Fed is saying, right, via their dot plots. And they're actually projecting something much more dovish. Um, I don't know. What do you see when you look at this chart? Yeah, basically the purple dots are what the Federal Reserve FOMC market participants have assessed, have forecasted, for lack of a better word, for the federal funds rate over the next five years. A higher rate means that the, the Fed will be hiking rates because uh, it wants to put inflation in its place and that the economy can handle it. That, you know, if we hike to 2%, the market's not going to crash 50% and unemployment go back to 11%. The, so that is the Federal Reserve, the sort of uh, what the, plenty, the monetary plenipotentiaries is in the uh, purple, purple dots. Mm. The tiny little turquoise circles and then the uh, black line going out to 2027, those are different versions of what the market thinks. There's what the Fed thinks and that what the market thinks. Fed funds futures is the future of the Fed funds rate. Euro dollar curve is slightly different. It's futures of three-month LIBOR. What interests me here, uh, Mike, is that, yeah, the market is forecasting that the Federal Reserve will not be able to uh, reach those levels of two, two and a half, three, even three percent. 
And that's striking on the surface that sort of seems, quote, uh, uh, bullish because low rates are good for stocks. But there must be a reason that the Federal Reserve won't be able to, to reach those hikes. I might add, uh, Mike, that th over the past 10 years, the Federal Reserve has been putting out these dot plots, these purple dots that you see, and they have never actually been able to raise the actual rate to what they were forecasting. So for every single day over the past 10 years has been a day where the effective federal funds rate was lower than what was forecasted previously, the median forecast via dot plot. So the purple dots have an abysmal record of proving true. The market has a much better, imperfect, like everyone's, not, you know, no one's perfect, but the market has a much better track record of being right. So, you know, there, there are three outcomes. Uh, there could be Fed, Fed funds rate could be that high, could be even higher, could be what the market is doing, slightly lower, or it could be even even lower than that. Let's just zoom. Let's just zoom out here for a second, right? If you were to go back in time and look at the dot plot, right? Dot plots that were being released at the open of 2021, there were no, uh, you know, I think the first uh, rate hike that was forecast was in like 2024 or something like that, right? These these uh, these rate hikes have been pulled forward and forward and forward due to fears about inflation in general, right? So when we're looking at this chart and, and we want to put it in some context, what, we're at, what we need to ask ourselves is what do we think inflation is going to do um, in 2023 in general? And what is the market's perception uh, about how much we should be worrying about inflation? Overall, you, like, you know, I, I've waffled on this show so many times about this. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I see a pretty strong argument at this point for uh, team transitory in general, right? There's a lot of, I mean, if you want to get technical about it, I get it. There's a lot of like unfinished goods and stuff like that. It does seem like a lot of the bottlenecks that have been uh, causing problems in supply chains globally is actually going, they're actually going to work themselves out uh, within the next six or nine months or something like that. Um, and when that happens, you could see a lot of those inflationary pressures ease. On the other hand, the little devil's advocate part of me <laughs> says, uh, and, and I did this exercise a little while ago, you can actually go back and, and read, um, you know, FOMC meetings like uh, Green Books, uh, Green Books and Blue Books back from the late 1960s. And, you know, a lot of the rhetoric, even that argument that I just said, oh, well, you know, there are bottlenecks right now in the supply chain, and they're going to ease as blah, blah, blah. You know, that's what the Federal Reserve was saying back in the late 60s. <laughs> in general. And, and obviously, you know, that didn't play out exactly how they thought. So, for me, you know, when you look at the dot plot, I, I think the Fed has never been great at forward guidance. That's not really what they're supposed to be doing. They're a huge institution. They're not really proactive in terms of monetary policy. A lot of the times they're, they're pretty reactive. Um, I think the question is the same thing it's always been is do we think, what do we think inflation is going to look like next year? I think you're a more of an inflationista than I am, honestly. Um, yeah, I, I definitely I am. I don't think we have the chart, but I, I think a key chart is the relationship between home prices and rental prices. And there's something called owner equivalent rent, uh, which is a big part of the CPI. Shelter as a percentage of the consumer price index inflation is something about 33%. Owner equivalent rent, which derives, which is very related to uh, housing prices, it, it lags it by about 12 to 18 months. And so if that historic relationship is going to, to hold consistent, we will have very high uh, increases in rent over the next 12 months. And I think that will put a floor on CPI uh, of somewhere about 4%. Of course, I'm not a macro uh, forecaster, but I think the, what, what surprises me, uh, Mike, is how high the median expectations are for inflation. People who say it's, quote, transitory, they're not predicting deflation or you know 1.5% inflation that we sort of averaged uh, over the past decade. 
they are forecasting 3% inflation, which is still quite high. So real rates are going to stay very negative uh, for for the, the near term. And this is a point that we uh, Harley Bassman made in our conversation, and it relates to some of the charts that Urian has, which is that the channel, oh, inflation is, inflation is bad for bonds. It's bad for stocks. Only if bonds and stocks sell off. If bond prices stay where they are in the face of 7% inflation, as we have seen this year, then real rates are extremely negative, And that's very good for stocks. The reason stocks performed so poorly in the 1970s is because bonds, uh, bonds sold off. Uh, so bond yields rose. And therefore, the discount rate, the rate at which stocks future cash flows were discounted back to the present increased. But if real rates stay at, at negative 7%, that is a bonanza for stocks. And that can be very good because inflation actually increases uh, a company's earnings. So yeah, I'm, a, I'm an inflationista, but you know, obviously I, I, I could be wrong. I, you know, and, and honestly, I mean, the, new, the argument is even more nuanced than that, right? So the, the two time periods that people like to refer to right back are the, are the 1970s and the 1940s, which were the two periods in, in living memory right in the U.S. where we actually had uh, some form of inflation. The way the Fed reacted, uh, you know, was very different in those two periods of time. So Volcker famously fought inflation, right? And he jacked interest rates up to something that looked like 18% or something like that in the 1970s, which is why real rates didn't go uh, super negative. In the 1940s, it was very different. We were obviously funding a world war. So inflation ran hot, but at the same time, the U.S. needed to fund itself. So it did implemented some form of yield curve control where they pegged uh, the long end of the curve. What's interesting to note, uh, Lynn Alden, uh, our mutual friend, she, yeah, she did a great interview recently on Macro Voices where she was talking about how inflation actually played out during that period of time. And I mean, if you can take yourself back to the 1940s and just imagine what it was like, you know, I mean... Basically, a lot of uh, factories and industrial production sites were being repurposed uh, to fit, you know, wartime needs. So there were a lot of those supply chain bottlenecks. Uh, commodity prices were running uh, rampant back then. And actually, the way inflation kind of played out is it would go in these. It wasn't like a sustained period of, of increase, right? The rate of inflation wasn't very constant. Instead, there would be these like massive spikes. And then it would kind of reset just at that higher level and be, uh, you know, you know, kind of calm down for a couple of years, and then would ratchet back up, and then it would kind of stay at that elevated level. Uh, so at the end of the day, you, you had prices that were much more expensive than they were, but it happened in this uh, step function type way. Um, no real point there, other than I feel like that could happen here again. Um, and also, you know, the truth is often Definitely. stranger than fiction. Well, I, Mike, I love uh, Lynn Alden. Her analysis is so great. I just want to ask, um, you, you said she was on the Something Something podcast. And I was, that's... Uh, no, no, yeah, no, but uh, Mike, <laughs> my podcast for guidance is the only macro podcast in the world. So I actually don't recognize any other podcasts. So <laughs> good. I, I appreciate it. That's a good alpha move. Um, just stick to that. Uh, everyone, everyone on the show, they'll forget the other macro ones. Um, what I actually want to do is uh, jump forward to this chart here. So, so with the, this is a pretty interesting chart showing basically the relationship of what real yields do during economic expansions, right? And I think a couple of different things uh, stand out to me here. One, there's obviously a great breadth um, in what real yields will do during economic expansions in general, um, right? So you have in like, you know, from 1921 to 1923, real rates were extremely positive. Uh, you know, if you're looking at kind of the 1938 to 1945, they dipped extremely negative at one point, same with 1945 to 1948 in general. Uh, but I, I think the, the thing that stands out to me in general is that the longest economic expansions 
tend to be where real real yields are slightly positive but relatively moderate um, and pretty consistent in general. So in, I, I think in looking at this chart is that when you have really uh, pronounced movements in real yields in either direction, either very positive or very negative, then there can be expansion during those periods of time, but it's very rarely sustained for long periods of time in general. So obviously right now, you know, we have really high CPI. It depends on whether or not that moderates. Uh, I feel like in, you know, H1 of this coming year, 2023, we are likely to see some sort of moderation in terms of CPI and therefore real yield should kind of fall back into place. Uh, you know, but if they don't, then I think what that kind of tells you is that maybe it's not necessarily uh, the end of the bull market, but it might be the beginning of the end. And honestly, even as I'm talking, Jack, listening to that interview that you did with Felix Zuloff recently, a lot of people are kind of coalescing around this idea that there's one more gasp, so to speak, uh, in this bull market. Um, and that's likely to be driven by, you know, Federal Reserve, like even another round of monetary or fiscal easing. But I mean, I, I feel like people do think that the end is in sight in general of this extremely long period of um, rising uh, asset prices. So that was that was a very long ramble. But no. you know, what do you make of that? Mike, we've got to stop uh, uh, being so self-effacing. I, I, I thought what you said was very interesting. I will note that I don't, this is a fascinating chart by Urian. I don't think I have the macro lens to really see the pattern. To me, it looks very hard to establish a pattern. For example, real rates were modestly positive from November 2001 to December 2007. Stock market, even though we were in a quote expansion, the stock market was pretty mediocre. Uh, likewise, but but uh, the yellow line, June 20, 2009 to February 2020, 20, real yields were pretty much the same as the purple line, but we had an epic bull market. Uh, you know, likewise, July 1980 to 1981, uh, I don't think the stock market did did quite well. I, I will uh, note that this is measuring using actual inflation rather than the inflation break-evens, which is what the you know non-arbitrage conditions that the market is pricing in for forward inflation. But yeah, this this chart puzzles me. I'm going to have to look at this chart for 30 minutes before I understand sort of Urian's uh, wizardry. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think it's interesting to look as well. Like Urian, uh, he was he showed us a couple of different um, periods and times. So we really zoned in on uh, the 1940s here, the early 1940s, and we're going to be showing a chart later of the early 1960s as well. So what we're looking at here um, is the real uh, uh, price gain uh, CPI adjusted for the S and P, uh, both in 1942 and in 2020 uh, in general. And we're also looking at you know on the bottom of this chart. Uh, in the purple, we're looking at um, real 10-year uh, yields uh, in 1942 and real five-year uh, tips adjusted for 2020 in general. So, you know, it, it's pretty tempting to look at these two charts and say, wow, this, um, you know, it, 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 these, these look like extremely similar periods of time, right? Uh, you know, I, I also know that in the 1940s, one of the big differences was that uh, valuation which is kind of the, the thorn in the side of the stock market, so to speak. Today, PEs are just super high. Uh, CAPE ratio is super high. Uh, you know, but that being said, I think there's a lot of parallels in between what's going on in the 1940s and what's going on today, namely the desire for the government to keep real yields negative uh, for a sustained period of time. Back then, we were already talking about the historical, you know, what, what was going on then is we were trying to finance ourselves for a war. Right now, we're trying to finance ourselves for something, right? Yeah, you know, we we have a shit ton of debt, um, and but and we also we kind of keep 
you know, pumping stimulus into the economy. There are ongoing economic disruptions in the form of COVID. You know, your politics aside, it's, it's extremely economic disruptive and we need to fund that in some way. So, you know, I always kind of blanch a little bit when I hear like this, this is wartime, same time as 19, you know, the 1940s. Like, I think that's kind of a, I don't love that metaphor. It's like, I, I would much rather be living now than in World War II. But from a financial lens, I can certainly see a lot of similarities. And I think that's what this chart is showing. Yeah, I, I'd also surmise that if the, we're at a real S&P price gain now of 90%, probably higher because it's chart, you know, maybe a few weeks old. And the peak, it was 118% in the 1940s. We're only 28% away from the peak. So we, we have uh, we have sort of front run the, the decline in, in real yields. So even considering it in this uh, historical pattern, we are quite richly valued. Let's let's take these charts for a walk. Let's, let's go to this next one. Uh, and it just shows the uh, policy rate uh, is mm-hmm. black line. It's below where it was in 1942. Um, and yeah. Is is that black line going to increase? Uh, that is the ultimate question, the red arrow. Um, the next chart shows uh, the uh, uh, policy rate. It just broads out of, of the 1960s in purple versus the uh, gray in um, the Fed, Fed policy rate in black. And this is in the nominal world, not in the real world. And it'll show we are right now well well below uh where the 1960s were again this is the 1960s not the 1970s uh we're we're in an era of six percent is is unattainable at least that is the dominant <laughs> framework a lot you know perhaps perhaps right. you know, i have some questions about that but the, the the logic that you laid out that that's too much we could never sustain six percent we can never sustain three percent that a lot of people believe that and it seems to be the, the dominant narrative uh, I'd also note that the speculation in glamour stocks began in the 1960s. I believe it's the Nifty 50, the growth stocks, back when Kodak, the camera, mm. was considered a growth stock. That is very interesting. What did we see shortly after 2020, after the Fed p- pumped in all the stimulus? A huge speculation in glamour stocks, technology stocks, stocks that are going to mine asteroids, stocks that are you know have electric planes, a new form, not new, but an, an explosion of alternative forms of financing via SPACs. So I think the, the we are in the speculation phase. We are in the, quote, glamour phase. So yeah, I'm seeing a lot of uh, anal- analogies to the 1960s. Me too. And you know what actually is funny, uh, you know, talking about stocks that are going to mine asteroids and all that kind of stuff. Back then, glamour stocks, space stocks. <laughs> those, were, those were glamour stocks back then. Really? What, uh, what sort of space stocks? I never even thought of that. Which, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? This was around the time when there was the, the whole space race going on. When did this, it wasn't the space race happening in oh, the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought, yeah. I never put two and two together in my mind. It always was NASA, you know, publicly owned, but I guess there, I'm sure were a lot of contractors. I'm sure there were private sector contractors yeah. in general. Yeah. But, but um, was there a space ETF like there is now? <laughs> I, I, I doubt it because I'm pretty sure that there weren't ETFs back in the 1960s, but uh, maybe there was some sort of mutual fund or something like that. Um, Some sort of investment structure back then. Who knows, man? I I always got to plug this too whenever we're talking about the space race, which seems to come up on this podcast uh, relatively often. But, um, oh God, what's that show on Apple? Uh, There's a really interesting show on Apple right now. It's with Steve Carell. I haven't seen no. it. No, not that one. Oh, oh, uh, that one's like that one's uh, that's on Netflix. Okay, no, no, no. for all mankind, for all okay. mankind is the show on Netflix. Very, very interesting. It, it starts from the the hypothetical of what if the Russians had won the space race, the the, the race to the moon, and basically the idea is that 
as Americans, we wouldn't have just let it lie. So we would have kept trying to escalate to win the competition. It's like, well, someone's going to build a moon, mm. uh, a, a base, a base on the moon instead of just touching down. And then we got to go to Mars from the moon and all that kind of stuff. It's a really interesting uh, historical hypothetical in general. Dang. But I didn't, I didn't understand it that period of time because obviously I wasn't alive back then. Uh, just the psychological significance of the space race, uh, the space race back then as well. Yeah. Um, I want to write a, a screenplay where it's what if the S and P, what if the Fed hadn't intervened in March 2020? I've sent it to Netflix. That they, for some reason, they haven't emailed me back. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Keep, keep me, keep me up to date uh, on what goes on there. Well, I mean, honestly, while we're just uh, you know doing hypotheticals here, what do you think would have happened if the Fed hadn't stepped in in 2020? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna interpret the Fed hadn't stepped in. I'm gonna the worst scenario. Okay, so they didn't backstop credit. They didn't do the the uh, municipal facility. They didn't do the loan facility. They didn't buy you know tr- trillions of dollars worth. They didn't do QE and they didn't uh, undo um, uh, cut rates. I mean, God, if they didn't cut rates, I think um, I think you would have seen. I think it, a ton of carnage that would have made the carnage that we saw look like kindergarten. Um, yeah, I, I think S&P cut in half, easy. Uh, bond yields uh, trading, an extremely illiquid spread. So even though it's like the worst economic catastrophe you know, in history, it would have been perhaps. Um, I think that bond yields could have gone up because people were selling bond yields because they scramble for dollars. Treasuries are not, you know, you, if, if shit hits the fan, you, you got to pay people in dollars, not treasuries, you know? So yeah. that, that, that yeah. is such an important thing to me, which is that from like March 13th to uh, March 23rd, treasury yields rose as stocks sold off. They were, not, they, were, they were not a hedge. They were a risk asset. So I think everything we see would have been exacerbated. And I, I think... Look, oh, the market, who cares? All these wealthy people lose money. I think that it would have resulted in uh, severe uh, economic harm. I don't think the Federal Reserve traditionally has a huge role to play. I don't think, you know, I'm not like a Federal Reserve uh, obsessive type person. But I think that, yeah, that was the Fed's moment and it, it played its hand, you know, not perfectly, but I think that it averted disaster. That's my, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, Totally agree with you. I mean, I was having we were, I was talking to Byron uh, earlier today about just this whole idea of um, moral hazard in general. And whenever you see any sort of crisis, it's really easy to make the argument that the Federal Reserve should step in, right? Because nobody wants to take short-term pain. And I think, I mean, even COVID is, I think, a different uh, a different situation than two thousand eight, right? In two thousand nine, because really what you were looking at was you know, there were so many toxic assets floating around the system that I feel like actually even back then it was more unlike, more likely or looked more likely that the entire system was going to unwind and we were going to find ourselves in some sort of depression. So it's very lo- difficult to look at a situation like 2008 or March of 2020 and say, yeah, the Federal Reserve or the government shouldn't have stepped in and bailed everyone out, especially in the case of COVID. It's like, what are you supposed to do? Are people just supposed to keep two years of capital on hand in case there's a global pandemic? You know, just just think about the the colossal... Uh, step back in capital efficiency that then the entire market would have to undergo if that was the case. It kind of seems like that is a situation for the government to step in. On the other hand, you know, you can very easily point to situations where I don't think that the government should have stepped in. Um, you know, again, this is way before I was alive, but you can take this all the way back to 1987 and Black Monday and Alan Greenspan stepping in, uh, you know, you know, to kind of 
uh, put a floor under the market back then. And then again, in 1998, when long-term capital, uh, you know, sort of went under and the Fed, the New York Fed organized this, this group bailout, right? They didn't actually go in and, and produce money themselves, but they organized some sort of bailout because they were worried about what an unwind would look like. I don't know. I think it's hard for me to say because I obviously don't know how far things have could have unwound in general, but you know, there's this, there's a guy, Scott Galloway, uh, you know, he, he made this point about the pandemic that I just can't get out of my head, which was, you know, if you had seen the NASDAQ get cut in half by 50%, then I think the entire country would have reacted differently to COVID in general. And How so? Interesting. It, 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 because it would have felt like we're all on the same team here, whereas it distinctly has not felt like that during the pandemic, right? At least to me, I, I do feel like there's this one group of people who are kind of like, you know, we should, you know, it actually, you know, it felt like there was a group of people who were like, hey, we need to get back to work and get back to life as normal. And I feel like the way that's been grouped was like people who are more blue collar workers, actually, and also younger people, right, who weren't as in danger from the virus. And then it seemed like there was this group of people who was like, hey, no lockdowns for however long, blah, blah, blah. And that was kind of the people who was like, well, I can, you know, older people that I can work remotely. And importantly, my stocks are doing fine. So it's really, you're like weirdly in this limbo kind of camp out type thing where it feels okay to just, um, you know, sit, take, take a step back. And I feel like we lost a sense of urgency and, you know, to share an, an anecdote from my personal life. So I I've had COVID here. I'm in New York. I got COVID last week. I got four rapid tests. They all came back negative and I was still feeling like shit. So I took a PCR and it came back positive, mm. but it's like, guys, how, and, and, you know, like I knew this in the back of my head, the rapid tests were only 60% effective. It's like, how are we still this bad? How is the testing still this bad? This is the United States. It seems like just a colossal failure on infrastructure parts. So I don't know. I kind of think that a lot of the times what we're doing when we step in and, and bail out financial markets is we're papering over the problem. And the, the analogy that I have from a company standpoint is it's very tempting to want to paper over the problem. It sucks to deal with shitty situations on a company standpoint too. I understand why people don't want to do it, but just in my personal experience, it's better to just face a problem, even if it's really hard head on and start delivering real solutions instead of papering over things <laughs> to essentially make the problem look less serious. Yeah. Rant over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I would say I, I also have had COVID over the past week. Uh, either I gave it to you or, or you gave it to me. Um, and yeah, it's been tough. I think we, regardless of fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus, I think the fact that some people have to work in person and some people don't just by the nature of the jobs. I think that uh, is an enormous rift between society that would be there, whether the S and P is at, you know, 900 or 9,000. Uh, I'd also add that I think fiscal stimulus was much more important than monetary stimulus. Like in, if I, if there were fiscal stimulus, but no monetary stimulus, I think we would have been okay. But you know, all the QE in the world, if, if the unemployment rate went to, 30%, you know, that I think that, um, all the Huey in the world couldn't, couldn't, couldn't fix that. Over that. Yeah. With you on that one. All right. had to put this up. This is like my least favorite chart of all time. Oh, uh, really? I absolutely, hate, I absolutely hate this, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, Bitcoin versus meme stocks in general. Um, as you can obviously see, <laughs> they look extremely similar and, you know, I, I've, I've talked about this with Lynn as well before, you know, because it bothers me because I, I see uh, Bitcoin as being very different 
right? I, I guess the framework that I have for Bitcoin, it's like a venture investment in a, in a new store of value, right? That's how I justify it doesn't behave like a store of value risk off asset right now, even though that's the narrative around it. And one day it possibly could be. Also, the flip side of that is that's why there's a lot of upside that's left. That being said, you know, I think you can make a really compelling case that Bitcoin and meme stocks uh, perform extremely similarly. I think the reason why that probably is, is Bitcoin and something like Tesla or something like GME or AMC act as liquidity proxies for the market in general, right? So when liquidity conditions are good, those uh, assets tend to perform well. When liquidity is poor, uh, they tend to reverse. So that's my explanation for when I look at this chart. I don't know, Jack, what do you see? I, I think that the phrase meme stocks, people think of GME, which, you know, you can invest $1,000 and turn it into a million dollars if you bought a call option or whatever. I think if you, if you could just zoom in, it says Goldman Sachs retail faves. So it, this is sort of, it does, it's not GME and AMC. I mean, that's part of the index, but it's also stocks like Luminar or QuantumScape, just extremely high beta stocks, somewhat speculative. And yeah, I'm, mm. I'm not surprised um, that, that it Look, the chart looks similar. I think, you know, if you put up a chart of the Russell 2000, perhaps uh, it, it wouldn't look uh, too, too dissimilar. I think that Bitcoin uh, is a risk on assets. I think it would be I think it would be absurd if extremely lucrative returns could be got from a risk off asset. If you want a risk off yeah. asset, look at UUP, look at the dollar, look at the VIX. Like those long term are not lucrative investments. They're hedges because the uh, they are worth the dollar that you make when you're lo when everything else in your portfolio is losing money is worth a lot more because you can use that money to plow into undervalued stocks during times of market panic. Yeah, as many people know, uh, Bitcoin sold off quite hard uh, during March 2020 alongside stocks, alongside gold. I'd also add, gold historically has been, and by historically I mean before 1971, was a risk off vehicle because it was used to settle. Uh, um, debts, and particularly in the 1930s, gold rallied when, as stocks sold off during the market crash of 1929 and then the Great Depression. Later on, it became a risk off, risk on vehicle because gold was not used to settle debts. Gold did extremely well from 2000 to 2012, but it sold off in 2008 alongside other risk assets because you can't pay a bank with gold. You pay a, a bank with dollars because we live in a world where the dollar is the currency hegemon of the world. We live in a fiat world. So, uh, yeah, I don't think Bitcoin is a uh, risk-off asset. I've done a little bit of quantitative work on this, and it likes uh, steep yield curves. It likes low rates on the front end, and it likes high rates on the back end. It actually trades much more like a copper stock than it does a technology stock. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's a, a bad investment. I just think that uh, – I, I should say everything I said – is true since March of 2020. Bitcoin has historically been uncorrelated-ish. Uh, ARK has done some good work on this, but I think that analysis is a little bit outdated. I think over the past, uh, let's say 18 months, it has been trading like a copper stock, like a bank stock, like a meme stock, but not like a risk off. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet, 
Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software it syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. Yeah. I've got a question for you. One thing I was thinking about, uh, and I'm starting to try to build a framework for around in my head. If you think about why you'd want a store value asset like Bitcoin or like gold, you would do that. You'd, you'd want to own one of those things when you'd be worried about like the, the solvency or credit of nations or economies in general, right? Over time, you'd rather own productive assets like stocks uh, over long periods of time. But maybe you're worried that, uh, you know, due to credit conditions or evaluations or whatever else it is, uh, things have gotten completely out of whack. So actually, you, you've, you've shifted, you've made the shift from wanting to own uh, something like a productive asset, like a stock to a store value asset. And you're okay with just, I just want to almost stay put right where I am. And I, cause I think these productive assets have gotten over their skis and are going to go down. If you think about the conditions that would be necessary for you to want to own a store of value like gold, I have to imagine that those would actually be the same kind of conditions that would make meme stocks or, you know, glamour stocks, if this is the late 1960s, perform very well at the same time. Do you know what I mean? So there's an environment where, for whatever reason, valuations have gotten out of whack, uh, liquidity is too high, credit conditions are too loose, whatever it is, we're, we're going into some sort of correction. That's, that's the underlying condition. And then two things should happen. One, you should want to own a store of value, but at the same time, the, the desire to speculate and, and these meme stocks should perform very well at the same time, even though they're totally separate assets. And the way that I think about this is, you know, when I look at something like gold or like Bitcoin, I kind of think in my head, okay, there is a, you know, roughly over, over the period of history, there's always some market needs, some demand out there for a store value type asset. It fluctuates based on what's going on with governments and economies, right? So if governments and economies are you know, chugging along and everything's going really well. People are like, I don't really need this store value. And if things aren't going very well, then they're like, I really want that store value. But so roughly the, the demand for that store value changes, but it's roughly the same. I haven't really heard people express this desire. There's another need out there in the market, which is just to speculate in general. And the vehicle of the speculation changes depending on what decade it is. But it's almost like there's this constant demand or need for speculation out there in the market. And you think of these things as being very different, but I'm starting to see them as actually more interrelated because the conditions that make a store value more a store value asset um, more valuable, those are the same conditions that encourage people to want to speculate and gamble. Am I making sense here? Do you, do yeah, you, do I you see you what are. I'm trying to say? Yeah, I, I think that a world in which money 
there's exceeds investment opportunities. Uh, there's much more money, much more liquidity yeah. than there are investment opportunities that you can get in cheap and it will give you a lot of return. Like Chipotle returns, you know, has a price to earnings ratio of 50 times. That means like for every dollar that Chipotle makes, the stock is worth 50. Uh, that, that is not exactly a, uh, a cheap valuation that, you know, the S and P 500 is expensive. It's not ridiculously expensive. It's not uh, Japan, 1989 expensive, but it, you know, it is expensive. And I think a world in which, there's just too much money, not enough investment opportunities. I mean, look at, I always think of Juicero, that Silicon Valley brainchild where it's a $700 machine to squeeze a juice pack, but you can actually squeeze it yourself. It's that the world that creates these sort uh, that, that is able to fund those sorts of fantasies is one in which there's too much money. And that money will seek out returns in things that can, uh, that can, that can uh, give you money. You know, if you can't invest in Chipotle at five times price of earnings because it's uh, 50 and you get the multiple expansion from PE of five to PE of 50, plus you get the earnings growth. If you can't get that, that 10X, you can, 10Xs can be found elsewhere. Um, and mm. yeah, so I think there is a connection between Bitcoin and meme stocks. I think some people buy them for similar purposes of speculation, but the store of value argument uh, is totally the opposite of, the uh speculation but i think that there, there definitely are similarities they're related yeah in in uh, so i guess like the optimal thing right if you were uh if you had a magic eight ball and you could see the future what you'd want to do uh in stockland is you'd want to buy you know tesla on the way up right when liquidity conditions are improving and i like the way you describe that there's more money than investment opportunities so you'd want to buy tesla in an environment like that and then again if you had the magic eight ball you'd want to sell that at the top and buy gold and that's 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 a similar narrative to what a lot of people say in crypto about uh, you know Bitcoin versus alts you know altcoins where you you almost want to you know alts drastically outperform Bitcoin in bull markets but then Bitcoin outperforms alts in a bear so it's almost like you want to own alts in a bull and and Bitcoin in a bear and in, in this case you'd almost want to own Tesla in a bull and gold in a bear um, yeah. If, if you could somehow do that, I guess the challenge is actually executing that strategy, which is easier said than done. Um, I, I think that going forward, my view, not your view, not Blockworks view, mm -hmm. not, not, the, uh, not the view of this podcast for guidance. My view is that I think speculative <laughs> stocks, the G Goldman Sachs retail basket, your AMCs, your Goldman Sachs, your, your uh, um, GMEs, all of your sort of it was a, you know, there was a guy who's a convicted financial criminal in China. He's well known. He's sort of the uh, Henry Blodgett of China. He's banned. He can't go back in China, but he has a SPAC in the U.S. for an electric vehicle company. And as a CEO, he hired someone else who has a very bad reputation. Like those sorts of companies are doing extremely poorly. Uh, there was a window where speculative companies, like November of 2020 to March of 2021, since March of 2021, companies that don't make money, companies that don't have any revenue companies that are you know fraud, frauds that attract short seller reports those sorts of companies do poorly and as I, as liquidity conditions deteriorate deteriorate is a negative word as, as liquidity conditions worsen i should say or get less good i wouldn't be shocked if those companies continue to underperform now bitcoin and crypto has all of that going against it but you have the fact that people love it like people i don't think you know the uh, the meme stocks that aren't GME or AMC, I don't think people are ride or die for them. And I think if they are down 60%, they'll sell them and they'll go down 80%. But I think 
you know, with crypto, you really do have a lot of true believers. Plus you have the institutional thing. So with crypto, uh, it's, it's much more complicated. So you, like, like the economy where growth is slowing, but inflation is very hot with crypto, you sort of many forces in its favor and then uh, against it perhaps too. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I certainly think that when it comes to crypto specifically, the connection to the macro is stronger than it's ever been. Like before this, I'm not really sure there ever was a connection in between Bitcoin and macro in general. I will say, I think you that narrative, that store value meme essentially has really taken hold even within the institutional community. And now there is a holder base for Bitcoin that I think is still primarily retail, but the institutional part is is certainly growing. So, you know, when you look at something like liquidity conditions in general, I think that it's starting to have a larger and larger effect on what happens in crypto. And I, I think you can make a really strong case if you just want to look at the last year. You know, Bitcoin topped out in... I know it, it, we, we saw a second high after this, but it was, you know, a little baby new all-time high. But it really, you know, the, the really, the momentum topped out in April uh, of this last year whenever Elon kind of had his tweet and there was all that uh, hash power that migrated out of China. And I think you could make a pretty strong case that that is when retail actually stopped moving into the market. I think Bitcoin sucked up a whole bunch of liquidity at that period of time. And then it's basically been, there hasn't been much new money entering the space since then. And it's really just been kind of ping-ponging around uh, different altcoins, you know? So, you know, there hasn't been much relative strength in Bitcoin since April. Um, you know, we've almost been kind of just range-bound, even if you're just looking, right, at this chart. Uh, and, and you know, you've seen spectacular rises in things like Axie Infinity or, uh, you know, you know, different layer ones like Luna or Solana or, or whatever, or Avalanche, but I don't think much new money has come in to the space in general. But you can't, you can't, you can never count out crypto. And that, that's something I know you too well. Like <laughs> no, you, you never, no. like there, there's some stocks where I'm like, I, I don't think that the next 12 months will be kind to, to, to this. With crypto, you can say, this is a risk, this is a risk, but you can never, you can never count it. I mean, look, so many people were so bearish when it went down to 29 and then, then look what mm -hmm. happened. And I also think the fact that people are so people are so bearish now, at least on Twitter, is a better sign than March and April of 2020 when everyone was just out of their mind bullish. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with you. I look at you defending crypto, Jack. I'm so proud. That's <laughs> so great. That's such a nice turn of events for me. Um, all right, let's move on to uh, commercial bank lending uh, versus treasury, treasury and agency securities that they hold. Um, so walk me, I, I know you suggested this chart, walk me through why you want, wanted to include this one here. So banks, as a lot of people know, banks have money. And the question is, what are they going to do with that money? They can lend it to people. They lend it to me, lend it to you. In that case, they would just create money out of thin air, essentially. And they would say that I have a deposit. So they give me a thousand dollar loan. Suddenly I see a thousand dollars in my account. And then, so their asset is a loan. Their liability is my deposit. My asset is my, de their deposit my liability is the loan. It's the reverse for banks. So that is the red line, which I made extremely small and frail. Uh, and you can see that the small and frail red line, bank lending, went up a huge amount during 2020. Why? Because of PPP. Basically, the government said banks lend to people, lend to companies that say that they'll keep their employees on so that we don't have a Great Depression. And then if you do that, we will wink, wink, nudge, nudge, probably forgive the loan. And that's exactly what happened. Since then, you can see that the red line has gone down and people like Jeffrey Snyder, people like Stephen Meter say banks aren't lending. Bank lending is the true source of inflation. What have they done with that, all the money, all of the uh, bank reserves that they have via, via QE, not that they can lend out reserves? Uh, well, look at the 
blue line, which I made very thick, um, which is the treasuries and agency mortgage, uh, securities that are owned by banks. So essentially government securities, uh, uh, you know, uh, some municipal agency, uh, the, a treasury bond, a, a, you know, a, a agency, government agency that issues paper. Very, very safe, very boring, very stuff. You're not the opposite of a meme stock, you know? Uh, so the, the red thing, the risky thing, lending to people, they're not doing that. They're putting it into safe stuff. So the argument for deflation is, hey, banks can have as much money as they want, but if they're only buying treasury bonds with it, that's not going to get into the real economy. And by the way, this is a chart that I made for my interview with former uh, senior Fed trader Joseph Wang, which airs on the 24th, uh, probably will be some days prior uh, by the time this airs. Mm. Yeah, I... First of all, I love the artistry uh, with the thickness of the lines. Uh, props to you. Uh, you. You rarely get those sorts of touches, uh, Jack. Well done. Yeah, you know, it's the sort uh, of thing I, that not a lot of people notice, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's, good to, it's good to be noticed, yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, for me, you know, commercial bank lending is one of those things where I swear to God, I've seen, you know, half of half the people that I follow are like, banks aren't lending. Uh, and then half the people that I follow are like, actually, they are lending. And, you know, one thing that I think is it's, it's really difficult to show on charts like this, as good of a data provider as, uh, you know, uh, Fred is, yeah. is where, what types of companies are they lending to in general? So if you're looking at that spike around 2020, that was, that was the PPP driven spike. And that probably actually went to a broad variety of different types of companies, right? Small companies, large companies, et cetera. You know, over, if you look at the history of banking in general in the U.S. starting back in the 1940s and 50s, you know, there's been a pretty consistent way of the way that regulators try to shore up risk in the financial system is through consolidation in general. And you can see why that would be the case, right? A company with a really large balance sheet, a bank with a really large balance sheet is less susceptible to, you know, fluctuations in the economy, right? They're less likely to go bust. They're less likely to have consumers lose their savings. Uh, so basically, you've seen this huge shoring up of uh, banks in the US and you kind of seen the death of the small regional model. What that's also meant is that as banks get bigger and bigger, suddenly the customer that it makes sense for them to service is also getting larger and larger and larger, right? So, you know, my understanding of where a lot of these loans are going is they're not going to small mom and pop type businesses, they're going to large multinational corporations. And you can make the argument, uh, hey, that's capitalism, baby. You know, that's, that's how it works. Uh, and, and that's the trade-off that we made. But you know, one statistic I remember looking back when the PPP loans were all going out in the depths of the pandemic was that actually you know, 65% of businesses that employ people in the U.S. are actually small mom-and-pop uh, style businesses, which was I, I had assumed that it would be, if anything, the other way. And it's not. So I mean one big problem here that's, that's tough to show via chart you know, I have, it's just so hard to understand what the actual decision-making process is for banks. Why would they not be lending? They have more reserves. Okay. But they're more concerned about the state of the economy. How does that all balance out? It's a cost benefit decision on their part. But also I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, most of these loans are going to large companies instead of small ones, which feel, feels like a problem to me, but I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah. And also so much of financing that companies get via the form of debt is not via bank loans. It's via in the form of bonds. In Europe, a vast majority of money is done via the old-fashioned banking model where banks just create money, boom, deposit, liability, bang, loan, done. But in mm. the United States, it's done where 
pension funds that you know they want a four percent yield, and they Goldman Sachs has Chipotle issue a bond, and then the pension by it's it's done with real money. It's not created from thin air like bank loans are, and that is a profitable model for banks. The investment banks like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you know, all the sort of people who are working 100 hours. Uh, but that's why Goldman Sachs is trading at a price to earnings ratio of 10, because people don't think that the bond bonanza can can last. Uh, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that the small business, mo- the business model of lending to small firms is uh, nowhere where it, it used to be. And also a lot of bank lending now is to real estate. So it's collateralized by residential real estate, office buildings, warehouses, and the like. Um, I think that bank lending is a derivative of rates. And I used to think it was a derivative of the shape of the yield curve because banks borrow short and they lend long. So if Interest, short-term interest rates are at zero and long-term interest rates are at five, you know, God forbid, that is really good because they've got a net interest margin of 5%. Actually, the more I've been talking to people like Fed Guy, Joseph Wang, Alfonso Pecatiello, the more I learned that banks really essentially create loans from nothing. They're re- regulated, obviously, so they're about how much they can do this, but their, their cost of funding, funding is essentially zero. So they really just care about rates. So I actually think that if the Fed were to increase, were to hike rates as it has promised, uh, mm. then that would be good for banking, which through the borrowing channel would increase bank lending, which would cause inflation. Normally, there's the borrowing channel. When you write hike rates, there's borrowing channel and then the portfolio channel, I think. Again, learn this all from Joseph Wang. Um, mm. When you hike rates, it decreases the value of fixed income instruments, so it, it tightens liquidity and that sort of uh, uh, puts a crimp on the economy. And that more than offsets the increase in bank lending. But if that doesn't happen via the borrowing channel, excuse me, via the portfolio channel and hiking rates uh, increases bank lending, then Joseph Wang uh, hypothesizes that hiking rates could be inflationary, which would be like the Federal Reserve pour- pouring water on the fire of inflation only to realize that it's gasoline. And then they're like, we got to put more gasoline on it. We got to do more. And then uh, that really is my sort of tail risk scenario is that hiking rates is inflation is inflationary. Again, not my base case. Yeah, I mean, you know Byron agrees with you on this. He's, <laughs> he's been saying this, man. He's been pumping this theory. I, I, I have no way of – I guess the, the bull case for that is that, okay, well, bank lending hasn't exactly been soaring and we've been lowering interest rates, right? That's traditional economic school of thought, right, which is that as you lower interest rates, that's supposed to juice lending and borrowing, and that's clearly not really the case right now. So it kind of makes sense, right, that if you reverse that – uh, then, then you know, you know, potentially that would actually create more lending, and you can. I, I mean, that's a really interesting point, right? It's like the stroke of a bookkeeper's pen, right? You're creating money out of thin air, so it doesn't. It's not really about the shape of the curve; it's more just about the absolute rates and where they're at, and is it profitable to lend at whatever rate? That's interesting, man. I, I don't have a good answer for you. Like um, I said, Michael, but... double entry bookkeeping is eating the world. <laughs> <laughs> Triple entry bookkeeping, baby. There we I'm, go. Uh, advocating from Mark Yusko here. All right. Uh, impact of tapering on S&P, emerging markets, and the dollar. So this is a really interesting chart. I don't know if you did this chart, Jim. This is a very good chart. What are we looking at here? All right. So what we have here is four different purple lines. The top is the uh, <laughs> Federal Reserve total assets, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And then you have the S&P 500, 
American stocks. Then you have emerging market stocks, EEM. Uh, and then you have the dollar at the very bottom, uh, ETF for a dollar. So the black boxes are the beginning of the taper when the, the taper in 2013. The taper tantrum, I believe, started in May when Bernanke was running his mouth in front of Congress and then real rates sold off, which we saw early about 45 minutes ago. Uh, that was the beginning of the taper tantrum, but the actual beginning of the taper was December 14th and the end of the taper was October, uh, sorry, the beginning was December 2013. The end was October 2014. And looking back, you know, when I hear the taper tantrum, I'm like, oh, stocks must have sold off. Risk assets must have done poorly. But as you can see in the second uh, thing, SPY, U.S. stocks barely noticed it. It was, it was, it was up. Um, stocks dipped a little bit after the taper was over, but pretty much smooth sailing. It was emerging markets that encountered a lot of pressure. And in particular, the dollar rallied hard starting from right before the taper ended uh, into there. So you know, I, I know I was reading a paper about, not reading, I was skimming it, but uh, it was like a very long paper about uh, the Bank of, uh, Bank of Indonesia and the Indonesian currency just took a tumble during this uh, during the quantitative taper. So basically, quantitative easing helps global financial conditions and it helps emerging markets much more than it helps um, sort of American stocks. Like QE, it helps Apple over a very long run. But like the fact that you know the Fed is buying bonds today doesn't help Apple today. But if the Fed eases off, it's and uh, starts to taper then emerging markets can go haywire as they did uh, in 2014, which was related to uh, weakness in, in commodities. But yeah, again, this is not a scientific chart, but I, it was just something I noticed that American stocks, they handled the taper of 2014. Um, yeah. Well, I guess when I look at the MSCI here uh, versus the, the versus the Dixie, obviously a strong dollar is really bad for emerging markets in general. So I guess as you know, there's the end of the taper, that's strengthening for the dollar, and then that ends up crushing emerging markets. I don't think the U.S. stock market loves a strong dollar, and you can actually kind of see that in 2015, it sort of treaded water for a long period of time. But honestly, even hearing you walk through it, a lot of this makes sense to me that you know, emerging markets care much more about a strong dollar than, uh, than U.S. stock markets in general. Yep. So, yep. And you're, you're totally right. right. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right, let's let's zoom forward a little bit here. We already talked kind of about basically the expected uh, FOMC versus the actual federal funds rate. It does um, it does do repeating that you know basically where where we hear the Fed uh, the Fed funds rate is going to be versus where it actually is virtually never ever line up in general. Um, this I, I I would love for us to dig into this chart because this is kind of a new idea. Uh, this comes to us from Will Beaumont, and this is basically securities as a percentage of total bank credit. You can see there is a really huge pronounced jump, and uh, it is the highest that it's been at you know, almost 34% or 35% uh, going back to at least the, the mid-1970s. So what, what, what are your takeaways when you look at a chart like this? I think it's uh, the huge bond bonanza that we've had over the past like 18 months. I think that's related to it. You've had just huge record issuance of investment-grade bonds, uh, collateralized loan obligations, high-yield bonds, and... Banks have been doing that, essentially not taking any risk because they are the middleman between people who want to buy bonds and people who want to issue bonds. Um, but they have to they have to hold that on their books for a little bit, but, but before they do that, so it's just showing that it's securities, uh, not bank lending. So, for example, like a, a bank lending someone money, 
is not a security. Mm. A bank giving someone a mortgage, I believe that is not a security. A bank owning a residential mortgage-backed security bond, a mortgage bond, that's a security. But uh, yeah, well, you know, the, the whole what's the security question uh, takes, us, takes us back into crypto. But um, yeah, they're basically, they're owning securities, they're not lending. Absolutely. I mean, I also think it just tells you, you know, I, guys like uh, Jim Bianco have made the connection between, you know, even though it, it doesn't break this out as bonds versus stocks uh, in general, like just the, the importance of financial assets to, you know, people kind of hold up this idea of there's the financial economy over here and that there's the real economy over here and people see them as these two non-connected entities. Obviously, if you really think about that, there has to be connection in between the financial economy and the real economy. And, you know, probably the, 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 the most central point where those two ideas actually intersect, where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, is the, is the banking system in general. So this, this kind of tells me at least the importance of financial asset prices to uh, probably banks, you know, balance sheets and how solid they feel about those balance sheets and conversely, probably their willingness to lend in general. Um, and, you know, this, I, I think this also builds on Jeff Snyder's points of people are trying to just move into safer, uh, safer type assets in general, especially if the majority of this is, is bonds. Um, Definitely. Why don't we take a look at here? So what we're looking at is uh, the Russell 2000 growth uh, ETF, value ETF, and the ARK innovation ETF. We've started back in January of 2019 here. Uh, Jack, what are your takeaways when you look at this? Well, growth has outperformed over the past two years, this starts of three years. Mm -hmm. Stocks that earn, make a lot of money now, mm -hmm. but are, they're, they're not going to grow their business. Like I'll give you an example, uh, a cigarette stock company. They're very profitable now, but cigarettes are not really the, the, the future. There could be something in the sort of the vaping thing, but it's not a growth you know, business. We're, unlike electric vehicles, where it's electric vehicles are going to be the future, it's so lucrative. And because electric vehicles will be the future, securities of electric vehicle stocks can be bid up, uh, as we can mm. see in Tesla, which has a price to earnings ratio somewhere in the 300 range. And Tesla is by far the, you know, the gold standard in terms of, uh, of value. I mean, you have companies that went public via a SPAC that have attracted lots of short seller reports. I mean, Nikola uh, was the company that the CEO had to resign because they did a demonstration showing how good their electric trucks were. And it was realized they later admitted they, they rolled it, the truck down the hill. The truck did not go. It, the truck rolled down the hill. I mean, uh, so that that's sort of a, what I like to think of in terms of growth. Like things can be so grossy that your truck can roll down a hill in, in, during an Jack, investor presentation. Do you see that Nikola's up like 20% today? I did. I did. <laughs> first delivery. They apparently delivered their first truck. Yeah. Well, I also, I love their investment. They're like, we are actually forecasting, uh, we're doubling our, de our deliveries that we forecast for Q3. We originally were planning to uh, deliver 25 vehicles. Now we're planning 50. I'm like, 50? <laughs> yeah. Give them the razzle dazzle, baby. Yeah. Give them the razzle dazzle. Yeah, that's really So funny. you can yeah. see this as the outperformance of the Russell 2000, that's small caps. The Russell 3000 is the 3000 biggest companies. The Russell 1000 is the 1000 biggest companies. So the Russell 2000 is companies 1001 through 3000. Uh, so it's small cap and small cap growth has outperformed small cap value. And the king of, uh, of growth stocks, not necessarily small cap, is ARK in the, uh, the ARK ETF, ARKK, which has outperformed uh, beyond investors' wildest dreams over the past three years. However, 
Over the past year, as some people may be familiar with, ARKK has struggled as the hypergrowth stocks, the founder of ARK, uh, Kathy Wood, calls disruptive technology. People are saying, hey, I actually want to buy a company that is you know, making money. I, electric planes are nice. Mining asteroids are nice. But uh, can, we see, can we see some cash flows here? Um, so over the past year, ARKK has done quite poorly. And uh, it's, it's not just about growth. You know, growth has done poorly, growth has done badly. You say growth has done badly, that's sort of my impression, but NASDAQ has done really well over the past year, something like 20, 25%. Meanwhile, ARKK has done poorly. So I asked you, Mike, before the show, what would you say is the value, the spread between how QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, which is like Apple, Facebook, excuse me, excuse me, Meta, Meta, Apple, (laughs) Meta, uh, Google, whatever, uh, Microsoft, what has that done? And... Uh, ARKK. So if you can go to that chart again, sorry. I was wrong about this. Yeah, I was wrong. I thought the spread would be like 20% or yeah. something like that. So, I'm not glad. I thought ARK was about even on the year for some reason. Um, they are not. They are not. I mean, it's probably uh, even over the past 14 months. So a year is a little yeah. bit arbitrary, but uh, I actually can't read this, but the, the QQQ is like, what, like 28% and our ARKK is down 27%. So that's a spread of 55%, which is like if you if you view the difference of holding cash during a the, during the Great Depression when the stock market went down fifty five percent versus owning stocks which went down fifty five percent like that's a huge difference. Okay, all right, but l- let me I'm going to come out in defense actually of my girl Kathy Wood here. So yes, over the course of the last year, which you yourself point out, relatively arbitrary period of time here. But look at it within this period of time, right? You know, the three-year time frame. It has dramatically outperformed, even though it's been a rough last 12 or 14 months or whatever it is. You know, it's it's hard for me to not look at someone like Kathy Wood and just absolutely respect what she's doing, you know? And uh, look, I listen to the macro podcast. I listen to the financial whoa, 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 whoa. There's only one macro podcast. Four guys. Oh, sorry, I listen to the macro podcast. Well, there are two. There's, the there's macro- Ford, uh, Ford Guidance two. and there's On the Margin. And then there's exactly the only crypto right. podcast, there's, Empire. There's, there's on the margin and forward guidance. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, I, I and there's always these caveats around uh, Kathy Wood. And there's always these subtle implications that she's going to be the poster child of this generation. Uh, you know, and, and when it all comes crashing down, you know, it's, she's going to be named. I don't know, man. I feel like she's already kind of made it. I, I feel like she has done something that's really, really difficult. She deserves credit without Kathy Wood deserves credit without an asterisk. I think I think that's my point when, when it comes to her and what she's done with ARC. And I'll say two two things as well. You know, I, I sat in this room when she came on Pomp's podcast like three years ago, and she made this call at the time, which was her the bear case for Tesla. Uh, you know, was seven hundred, and the bull case was fourteen hundred. This was pre stock split, and I remember thinking that is like the boldest call I've ever heard. I think Tesla was at like one hundred and fifty bucks. You know, every major hedge fund manager, Jim Chanos and their mother, shorting the stock, and then like boom, you know, it's it's already blown through her bull case. Uh, and and the other thing is, you know, she gets a lot of crap for this, but I actually think it's really innovative what she's done. If you hear the way she describes her portfolio construction, she thinks of her big, most liquid holdings as cash, and then she thinks of her the smaller more liquid tech stock bets as kind of investments and she trades in and out of them. I mean, I could, I could believe me, I can see how that would go against her, but I I feel like that's, she's directionally found something that's very interesting. I see parallels of that in crypto as well. And uh, I don't know, man, I just think that she deserves quite a bit of credit and honestly her results 
kind of speak for herself. So that's my that's my defense of, of Kathy Wood. I think that was an admirable defense of Kathy Wood. I would say it was not necessary because I didn't attack Kathy Wood. I, I too have a lot of respect for Kathy Wood. I think that she deserves the credit that she uh, has and she has a very high mm-hmm. reputation. She, she is a pioneer in the field of active ETFs. I think that the the, the question that I'm not asking is, should we respect Kathy Wood? I, I do respect mm-hmm. Kathy Wood. I, you know, whether people do or I know, not. I know. Maybe yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, don't worry, don't worry. Um, but I'm, the question is, how is the, how is the stocks, how, how are the stocks going to do over the next year? And I think that we are in a, we are in contraction mode. Yes, mm-hmm. ARKK, the, the long-term returns might be higher, but it had, we had this huge phase up and the huge phase down. And I don't think that the down phase is over. Uh, maybe it is next next month, but yeah, I, I think like I'm, I look at a lot of the stocks in ARKK and a lot of them uh, are have attracted attention of short sellers. And I might say Tesla is a very rare case. Not It is a rare case of a stock that is widely shorted and short sellers were completely wrong. Like if you look at like the average uh, short seller, the average stock that they short, with the exception of GameStop, which wasn't fun- fundamental, like it's remarkably good to you, to be a short seller you have to be right and i mean there's some stocks that are down 90 percent, 80 percent, 70 percent over this year and i think partly because of the huge bubble in speculative stocks that arkk sort of rode again i don't think that the stocks are uh, you know low quality or frauds at all but um because you know you had you had companies trading uh extreme multiples where uh, you know, the, the CEO is, is a fraudster uh, and the like. So yeah. I think short sellers have done very well. And um, yeah, I'm 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 pretty bearish on this is, again, my view, pretty bearish on high beta speculative growth stocks for short sellers in general. I just have a, a ton of respect uh, for the people that do that. It's so much hard. First of all, structurally, it's a more difficult business than going long. For a couple of reasons. One, obviously, uh, you know, there's a cost, right? There's like a negative carry cost of your investment. So you have to get it right on the timing for multiple reasons. Also, it's like the stock market is kind of like a casino that's rigged in the in the in the favor of people who participate in it. It generally goes up over periods of time, right? So you just have to be doubly, doubly good to be a short seller in general. I think it's such a hard job. And not to mention everyone's screaming at you the entire time, right? Because your interests run contrary to everyone else. That's not to say there are short sellers who don't abuse that practice. But I think overall, they're really, really healthy for the state of the market. Jim Chanos did this interview with, uh, you know, it's a master's in business interview with Barry Ritholtz two or three years ago. And he had this phrase that really stuck out to me. It was like, um, you know, most people, you can scream about fraud in a bull market and no one will care. People only start caring about the fraud when the prices go down in general. Uh, and I think and that moment I, is now. Yeah, I, I mean, that one stuck out to me. It's like, no one cares. We're all making money here, right? Like, they cut a little bit of quarters, right? They didn't pay super close attention to the accounting, like whatever, whatever. Uh, and that, and but you can totally see it going the other way when prices reverse, and it's like, oh my god, the stock's going down. Why? You know, wait, you cut quarters on the accounting? Son of a bitch! You know, like I can totally see. I, yeah, I don't have to stretch my imagination to understand why that's the case. Yeah. So, I think yeah. also a huge headwind for short sellers is that when they sell. So if you're long, you buy a stock, you give the broker money, they give you the stock. When you short it, you give, you sell something you don't have and you get cash. What can you do with that cash? Well, back in the day in 1990, you could earn 8%, you know, sort right. of risk-free you know, on that money. Now you earn zero. So it's, 
it's even more negative carry than you, and you're paying borrow. Um, yeah, totally agree with you on short sellers. And I, this is a controversial take. I think that the longs are far, far engaged in much more market manipulation than the shorts, sure. particularly in meme stocks. I mean, you look at a stock of AMC that goes up, you know, five seconds after a stock of GameStop goes up. It's not, it's not people on Wall Street bets who are doing that. It's, it's institutional hedge funds who are mining Wall Street bets and sort of taking advantage of the, doing correlation tra- trading, taking advantage of that. Uh, Mike, we've run absurdly long. This has been a ton of fun. When do you think we're going to air this? Um, let's do next week. I next think. week. But look, the people, the people, the people need. Uh, you know, I think this should air what, like mid next week, basically. So in the doldrums of December, people are hanging around the house. Uh, maybe they don't have a whole lot to do. There's no good macro content getting released. That's when you and I swoop in, Jack. Well, yeah, also because there's no other macro podcasts. That's just no other macro. I love this. We're just, yeah. So is the, is the plan here to manifest that no other macro podcasts exist and we're just going to manifest, put that out into the world? I mean, it's the truth, Mike. I can't it think of it. Truth. When I think of macro podcasts, I think of forward guidance and on the margin. And I, I'm at a loss yeah, for words the- because there are none. Right. On the margin and forward guidance. Totally. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. What other macro podcasts? I don't even know. Um, Jack, I'm glad we did this, buddy. This was a ton of fun. Maybe this could be our, our, our new podcast. It's neither on the margin or forward. It's, it's our, our new show. On the guidance. On the guidance. margin. Yeah. <laughs> We've got some work to do. Margin on, guidance. Uh, on the name. By the way, one thing, I, one thing I like about both of our podcasts is that mm-hmm. they are terms that people use a lot, particularly in finance. So talking central bankers, forward guidance. Oh, this company, we're releasing forward guidance. So sometimes I just like like to do cut the video and just say like, I did I cut the video and said, what what a uh, reporter? Wh- excuse me, Chair Powell. What is your favorite podcast? And it's like four guys, four guys, four guys. I saw that. And on the margin, people some, use that too. A. So it's we're in the lingo, you know. That's some A plus meaning. Whenever because uh, sometimes on the margin actually comes up as a phrase in these podcasts. And uh, you know, have you seen the Leo DiCaprio meme where it's like you're pointing like this? You know, it's like the person said the title of the movie in the movie, and it's yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, him yeah. pointing from his couch. That's what I always. That's what's happening in my head. In case anyone was uh, yeah. curious about that, so. Jack Attack. Enjoy the holidays, my friend. For those of you listening at home, enjoy the holidays. Uh, We will see you all shortly. I hope you enjoyed Mike's Bitcoin prediction. Could a million dollars be within the first quarter of 2022? Yeah, I'm not not signing my name to that. No, no, sir. Um, All right. Take care, buddy. You too.